This is a reading from Job. Job said, Today also my complaint is bitter. His hand is heavy, despite my groaning. Oh, that I, that I knew where I might find him, that I might even come to his dwelling. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, but he would heed me. There, an upright person could reason with him, and I should be acquitted forever by my judge. If I go forward, he is not there, or backward, I cannot perceive him. On the left, he hides, and I cannot behold him. I turn to the right, but I cannot see him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. If only I could vanish in darkness, and thick darkness would cover my face. The word of the Lord. A reading from Hebrews. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And before him no creature is hidden, but all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render an account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to the man, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. The man said to Jesus, Teacher, I've kept all these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you own and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come, follow me. When the man heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. And then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Well, they were greatly astounded and said to one another, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but not for God. For God all things are possible. And Peter began to say to Jesus, Look, we've left everything and followed you. 
And Jesus said, truly, I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age. Houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, what an easy stewardship sermon. Uh, simply just sell all you have and give it to St. Thomas and everything will be good. Uh, I should probably sit down now. Uh, you know, this is a really interesting thing here um, that, that we get to hear. Um, at face value, it's really easy to think these people are just incompetent. You know, after all, we sort of know better. But I want to invite you to really consider uh, what's going on here. Um, something I think that is rather insidious, and it lies at least at the root of my heart, if I'm sober and honest about it. Um, you've possibly, if you've been around church, you've heard that there was in Jerusalem a really narrow and short gate into the city called the Needle Gate. Has anybody heard this before? Complete poppycock. And uh, there was no such gate. However, in the church of my youth, I grew up hearing there was this gate, and a camel could go through it on its knees. So Jesus was saying, you just have to pray, and then you'll get into the city. I mean, it's ridiculous. Sorry. Um, instead, I want you to consider that the people at the time of Jesus really believed in something we've sort of accepted um, as we've interacted with the world, uh, in something called karma. Now, we don't believe in reincarnation, but in general, we do believe that what goes around comes around. And the disciples were absolutely convinced that if you were a righteous person, then God would reward you with material possessions. I want to be honest with you. I think most of us buy that. Hook, line, and sinker. Now, you can see this on TV. In fact, where I used to live in Atlanta is one of the more popular folks, Creflo Dollar. And I'm not going to say anything about Brother Creflo. Uh, he does have gold leaf business cards and drives a Bentley, uh, which he believes God wants him to have. And Creflo has said this thing that we call prosperity gospel, which is the Lord wants to prosper you. So if you're a good Christian, God's goal, in fact, obligation is to return your goodness with money. You know it's compelling because there's like 20,000 people that go to that church and he's got a TV ministry. And I want to tell you, friends, I wish it were true. I wish it were true because then life would be extremely logical and everything would make sense. I don't know that we necessarily believe in prosperity gospel, but I do think we believe in non-prosperity karma. Uh, I've only received two tickets in my life, I'm, I'm happy to tell you. <laughs> One of them, I really didn't see that stop sign, and um, thank God nobody was crossing when I was going 45 miles an hour. Um, and after the, I saw the lights, I thought, God, what did I do wrong? <laughs> I mean, I ran the stop sign. But I wondered what I had done wrong for God to punish me with that ticket. Clearly, I deserve that. I'd done something, and God was giving me 
my just reward. You may not be the person I am, but I find that deep suspicion that what goes around comes around underlies a lot, frankly, about my belief. And notice the disciples share it. Jesus says this thing. He says, you know, how difficult it is for rich people to make it into the kingdom. And the disciples are shocked because they believe that rich people are exactly the ones who are righteous and upright. That's why they're rich. And Peter says, God, if rich people can't make it, how do poor folk do it? And Jesus says this really interesting thing, doesn't he? He says, listen, you know, um, you get a hundredfold your reward in this life, including persecutions. Well, I don't know about you, but I didn't really sign up for that. You know, like I, I wasn't hoping God would increase my persecutions because I tried to do the right thing. None of you are smiling. <laughs> um, and then Jesus says this really vexing thing, the first will be last and the last will be first. And I, and, I, and I want to share with you, I really think Job is speaking out of that position. We hear Job saying, God, I can't seem to find you anywhere. Because ultimately what Job believes is that when you do the right thing morally and religiously, God rewards you materially. Job believes that. Actually, Job learns that that's not the case if you read the whole book. We, we were taught as a kid, like, oh, so-and-so has the patience of Job, and that was a compliment. Read the book. I urge you, the man has no patience, <laughs> none whatsoever. The first two chapters, he comes across really good and pious, and then he rants over and over again about how he's not getting what he deserves. He's not getting what he deserves. My dad taught me as a kid, you know, to actually be grateful we don't get we deserve. And that, that actually seems right. I didn't fully learn that lesson. I still haven't got there. But, you know, the thing that we, I think we're being challenged to think about by God this week is that, frankly, grace is not deserved. That's sort of the point. It's a gift. But most of my spiritual life has been about currying God's favor and then being surprised when it didn't show up in the way as I wanted. I told you last year about how it was my marathon year and how this was my goal. And you know, I sure thought God should honor that goal because it's a good one. I mean, it was good for my body. It was good for my, my spirit. I'm out there running. I'm working hard. God should bless me because that's good stuff. And so what I wanted God to do was take away the inherent risks of running. Running, you may or may not know this, has more injuries than just about any other sport. And I expected God was going to take away the inherent risk of running by letting me finish that marathon, letting me, that I was working my buns off to run, no more ankle injury, no more knee pain, no more hip pain after the 15-mile run. It was a really interesting thing to sit back and think that I expected God to take away the natural consequences of what I was doing as a sign of favor, that I wasted my prayer life doing that. Hear me say, I wasted my prayer life expecting God to take away inherent risk of something I was doing because I was somehow earning God's favor and I should be healthy all the time even though people get hurt every day doing this. 
And then there's this lovely bit, isn't it? And I want to say it actually is lovely. See, as a young boy, I was taught to hear this Hebrew passage in a chilling way. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It separates bone from marrow. And as a little boy, I was taught that the word of God was the Bible. But if you read the passage, don't you see, the word of God is Jesus Christ living. It's not the Bible. It's the resurrected Jesus. And I want to put to you that I think what the living, resurrected Jesus, the word of God, would like to separate from us is frankly our misunderstandings that get in the way of living into what God has for us. And one of those misunderstandings is we get what we deserve. The reason that's so harsh is that when I look at other people, I look at them not with appreciation or empathy, I look at them with judgment. Because the truth is, if I'm a little bit more righteous than my neighbor, there's a little more hope for me in God's bell curve economy. I know it sounds like I'm being silly. Friends, I deeply believe that, even though I know it's wrong. I deeply believe it, and I know it's wrong. And so there's this bit I want to suggest, these problems with the young man. He says, teacher, how do I inherit eternal life? How do I get it when you die, or God dies, or I die? Somebody's got to die for you to inherit something. He doesn't ask, how can I enjoy the life God intends for me now? Do you notice that? Not concerned about living right now, and sure enough, as a kid, I was taught one glad morning, when this life is over, I'll fly away. But then what's the point of life? Surely God cares as much about the life we're living now as the life there is to come. Surely God cares. Otherwise, the moment you became a Christian, you'd fly away to heaven. And maybe the thought about this is, at least this week, you know, and I, and I continue to try to think about this. Why do I choose to have faith? Do I choose faith? And I do believe, friends, we choose. We choose to believe every day. We either choose to believe that God is present with us or God is absent. These are choices we make. I think I choose it because, frankly, it makes a lot more sense than when I don't. And I think what these passages offer us is how to make better informed choices. And this bit at the end, the first will be last and the last will be first, it actually never made sense to me until I heard this sermon by Jenny back in April. Now, hers was about racing, and she's going to tell her own story later, because it just occurred to me during this breakfast, I was sitting down talking to Carolyn Atchison about what this really means. (laughs) A year and a half ago, 43 of us went to Israel, which was an incredible turnout, I want you to know. And when we got there, we did, well, a lot of walking. More walking, I think, than you gambled for. More walking, I think, than we knew we would be doing. Uh, There was Courtney, who many of you know, who came in a wheelchair. She could take breaks, and Courtney has this ankle issue, and we sort of pushed this wheelchair around, and I realized through Jenny's insight that that's exactly what this was about. See, there's times as a parent and as a runner and as a swimmer, all I've thought about 
is being first, finishing, getting my personal record. And let me tell you, when I go on trips, my goal is to see everything. Even if it's closed, I'm going to somehow knock or ask the gatekeeper, I know it's 9.30, but I don't know if I'll be back. Would you open the bell tower? You climbed the taller one across the street, but I didn't climb this one. And I need to do that so I can say, I did it. To be honest with you, saying you did it really does not have quite the enjoyment of enjoying it. (laughs) Is that okay to say? What this trip did for me, what I've realized racing as an adult that I never realized in high school. See, adult races, adults are nice. Adults are encouraging. They say things like, good job when they pass you, and they're not being sarcastic. No, I mean, you know, I've had people, I swear, slow down so that I'm encouraged to, like, keep going. I did that during my worst race ever. I, drove, I was racing by people, and I just had this infectious spirit. And I was actually counting their laps. And I was like, you've only got one more. You can, you can do it. There was this bit about traveling together and seeing things that we knew we didn't have the mobility to see and about doing these races in such a way that we didn't just think about finishing ourselves. We thought about finishing together. And in that sense people who could have been first chose to finish second so we could do it together. We chose to miss the box checking of seeing every nook and cranny and potential holy place among the 900 million different Christian denominations so that we could be in communion with one another. We chose to slow down so that we could all cross the finish line instead of so we could beat each other or outdo each other. I wonder if that's what the man had forgotten. I wonder if he was keeping all of these rules so he could PR in the race of faith instead of living in communion with his brothers and sisters. The way I grew up, and I know this is not what they meant to teach me, but the way I grew up, I looked at my friends in youth group and I tried to figure out which one of us was the holiest. I know, I'm admitting to my pettiness right now. Instead of thinking, if I ever worried about the deficiencies in faith of my brothers and sisters, to say, I'm going to go at your pace because we can do this together. We can cross this finish line together. And then, of course, don't you see, what we achieve is not just some kind of high rep max, in our personal faith journey, we achieve the family of God now. Those few moments, and, and I'll tell you, as a petty person, 
They're not as many as I'd like, but there are a few moments when I have raced that way, mainly because other people had the decency to slow down <laughs> to support me. Those are the mile markers in my faith journey without which I don't know where I'd be. People slowed down so that I could cross finish lines, sometimes ahead of them, sometimes with them pushing me from behind, always together. And I hope you don't mind me saying this. Yesterday we hosted a race. I'd even forgotten about it until about 2.30. We hosted a race for this group called Ainsley's Angels. And this is a group that is committed to integrating fundamentally disabled people into normal living. That's what they want to do. So these are people who had cerebral palsy or who were paralyzed from the waist down who were in these really special, they weren't wheelchairs, they were racing carts. And there were these teams of runners who were pushing these people in a 5K. These are people who are never going to run a race in their lives, you understand. And they raced. And they got to know how racing felt. The spirit of the day was incredible. And of course, the neat thing about the race was, it wasn't about having the fastest time. It was finishing as your team. It was finishing as your team. And there wasn't a single person who passed another thinking, I don't think so, I'm better than them today. It really was about giving people the opportunity to enjoy a way of life they otherwise would not have known. And isn't that exactly why we're here? To enjoy the life God is calling us to and to offer that joy to people who otherwise may not knew it. And of course, the great thing about all of this is that Jesus would love to separate anything from us that gets in the way of that. I think the scriptures this week are really calling us to do what we say we want to do here at St. Thomas. We can do more together.